You may be seated. Amen. Thank you. I think with that, we can just go home. Amen. Right? Amen. I mean, we have, we have sung so much truth this morning. Thank you, Peter, the band, our worship leaders. So, so blessed. Um, before we get, get started this morning, and, and uh, good morning to you all. I, I always enjoy being here, here with you, and um, sometimes I, I'm not thrilled when they ask me to, to stand up here because I'm not worthy uh, to do this. But as I was explaining to my son yesterday, I told him, I said, I said son, Dad's, Dad's preaching in Bartlett tomorrow. And he goes, Dad, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. And I said, well, son, it, it's, it's tough sometimes, but when God gives you gifts, you got to use them for the church. And uh, I said, I didn't ask for the gift <laughs> of, of being able to teach the word, but God gave it to me. And, and I pray that, that you're encouraged and uplifted uh, this morning. But uh, before we get started, I know uh, as we celebrate Memorial Day uh, tomorrow and, and this weekend, many of you may have family members or loved ones or friends that have given their lives um, in service of our country. So I'd like to take a, a moment of silence just to, to recognize um, the, the service members through the years that have lost their lives, uh, paying the ultimate price for our freedom. So let's have a moment of silence. Father, we come before you this morning as we, as we get into to your word and as we stand in, um, in recognition of Memorial Day and what it means. And Father, we think about um, the men and women that we know personally, our family members, our friends, people that we don't know that have um, sacrificially given their lives to protect our freedom. And even more so, as we gather to hear your word, we think about how you gave the ultimate price. You paid the ultimate sacrificial price to buy our freedom from sin and bondage and death. And Father, we thank you for that, and we are eternally grateful. And Lord, as we get into your word, I pray that you let me move out of the way. Get me out of the way and, just, and, and you speak through your word this morning as you, as you see fit. You speak to the hearts and lives of everyone that you've gathered here today. Lord knows you've, you've spoken to me a bunch just preparing this. Now, Father, I pray that your name be glorified this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, do, let me ask a question. Do we have any uh, wilderness goers out there, any outdoors people, people that love, love the great outdoors? Some, okay, maybe some, maybe not so much now. Some people's idea is camping is being in a nice air-conditioned cabin uh, or an RV and uh, not necessarily tent camping or just bearing all to the, to the elements, right? <clears throat> um, but, yeah, wilderness, outdoors. I, I love going, going camping. I love hiking and backpacking, and I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm an extreme lover of it, but I, I like being in the outdoors. And when we think about the wilderness, Right. If you're like me, sometimes the, what comes to my mind is is the woods, right? The forest, the wilderness, nature, those types of things. Um, and but really, let me let me tell you what the wilderness is. And I can I can use this example because he's not here this morning, but he might be listening to this. But the wilderness is the place where you go camping with your best friend over New Year on New Year's Day. And you don't get a wink of sleep because your feet are freezing, because it's below freezing temperatures. And you wake up the next day only to find out that your best friend, use those air quotes, had an extra pair of downlined feet covers and decided not to share them with you or let you know that they had them until the next morning. So that's what the wilderness is <laughs> to me. But when we look at the wilderness in Scripture, it's a much different place. It's, it has a, a much different connotation. Because the wilderness, when you read it in Scripture, refers to the desert. It's, a, it, it's dry. It's desolate. I know many of you have probably, as, as I have, have, 
have journeyed to the Holy Land and have been around there and seen uh, the geography and what the what the environment over there is like. And, and if you've been there, you'll know that when you're in the northern part of the country, it's beautiful. It's lush. It's green. It's fertile farmland. It's beautiful. But the further south that you go, the more desert it is. It's desolate. There's no life there. Very little life. And it's lonesome. Isolation. It's desolate, right? And so I think about in, in our lives and I ask you the question, have you ever been in a spiritual wilderness? Have you ever been maybe mentally, emotionally in the wilderness? This place of being dry, maybe you feel all alone, you feel desolate, little life, there's no way out. Where do I go when I'm in this wilderness? If we're honest with ourselves, we've all been there, right? Maybe you are there today. Maybe you've just come from there. Maybe you're heading towards, towards that area, but we've all been there. And these periods of time in our life, they come and they go, and, and we, we stop and we ask ourselves, how do we get here? How did we get to this place in the wilderness? And now what do I do while now that I'm here? How do I get out of this, out of this place? And so this morning, as I was, when God laid this on, on my heart, it was about a month ago, this, this just hit me, and I began thinking about, about this and, and, you know, just being in these moments in, in my own life and thinking about, man, why do we, why do we go through these, through these periods of time and these, find ourselves in these wilderness? What do we do about it? Well, this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at probably one of the most iconic figures in all of scripture, the prophet Elijah, and see his journey in the wilderness and what, what God had to say to him. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible accessing device, um, you know there's a God, um, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, you know there's a God when you have a teenager in today's society says, you know what, I prefer to have a hard copy scripture because when I look at it on my phone, I get text messages, I get ads popping up. It's a distraction for me. And I said, praise the Lord, hallelujah, right? That was my nephew, by the way. Um, <clears throat> so, so 1 Kings chapter 19, as you're turning there, as you, as you get there, let me kind of give you some, some context, some background of, of what's going on here. So this, this account takes place somewhere around 900 B.C., and we, you think kind of through the Old Testament, what has kind of happened with God's people. They've gone into the, to the promised land, and they've established themselves, and, and they've, they've conquered it. They've driven out, driven out the nations. And then they begin looking around saying, you know what? Everybody else has a king. I think we need to, we need to have a king. And, and so they, they, you know, find Saul anoint Saul as king, and then everything happens the way that God had, you know, predicted it was going to happen, right? And so we had the kingdom and the nation of Israel, and we go through Saul and David and, and Solomon, and after the death of Solomon, the kingdom is divided. It's split, right? You have the ten tribes of Israel that formed the northern kingdom and, and known as Israel, and the two, two tribes of Israel uh, in the southern kingdom, known as, as Judah. And as you go through and you read through the historical books of the Old Testament, you see that it's, it's wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. People did evil in the eyes of the Lord, right? I mean, you just look at the book of Judges, right? You can go through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 It's all the same theme, right? And let me go ahead and tell you what, what that is, right? The theme of the historical books is any government that doesn't have God at its center is destined to fail. Now, who said that the Old Testament isn't relevant today, right? Amen? But so this is where we are. This is, this is what takes place. And God used his prophets to bring his mouthpiece, give his word to the prophets, to the people. 
prophets were God's voice at this time. And so where we have in, in, in the time of Elijah, you had, a, you had a guy named Ahab who was king over, over Israel. And if you go back and you read, and we're not going to kind of spend time looking at this, but, but primarily in chapter 16 forward, you understand that, that Ahab was a wicked, wicked man, right? It says that, that he did more to provoke the Lord towards anger than anyone else prior to him. Not only that, it says that he considered the sins of his predecessors trivial, right? Anyone ever use this word trivial, right? I'm a, I'm a CPA by trade. Don't hold that against me. Most people think that when you say you're a CPA, you work for the IRS. That couldn't be further from the truth. Love you all, right? I'm not out for your taxes, okay? But is it, in my business, we use this word trivial all the time. And what it means to, in my profession, is that whatever this is, is so small, it's not even worth my time considering. It's trivial. And it says the word, the scripture says that Ahab considered the sins, the idol worship, that his predecessors had introduced were so trivial to him. That's how wicked this man was. And not only that, his wife, Jezebel, was not even a Hebrew. He married a pagan that was his wife and, and just a wicked, wicked time, right? And so then we hear we have Elijah who shows up in, in chapter 17 of, of 1 Kings. And it's interesting. As big of a name as Elijah is in the Bible, there's very little known about him. Right? You, you, you don't get a whole history about, about who this guy is. and what, but, but what he did in his life is so remarkable that you know, people, people looked at John the Baptist and said, oh, here's Elijah returned, right? They looked, at, they looked at Jesus and said, is this Elijah, right? And, and Elijah is known as the prophet of fire, right? And, and we know you've, you've probably heard the, the, the story about, you know, the, the showdown on Mount Carmel, which is probably one of my favorite biblical passages. And I remember going to the Holy Land, and we stood on Mount Carmel, and it was in the middle of the summer, and I was like, man, I don't know how much fire God had to bring down. It's hot up here, right? Um, but but he, he shows up, and his mission is to confront Ahab and Jezebel over their idol worship and leading God's people astray. So much so that, that Elijah said, you know what? Ahab, there's going to be a famine in the land. There will not be any rain unless I say, there is. God had given him that much power, that much authority to say, it will not rain until I say so, right? Amazing. And then we have the account of what, of what happened at Mount Carmel. And you know the story, right? And God shows up in this, this amazing way and, and just consumes fire from heaven down to the, to the, to the altar that Elijah had built. Right? And just doused, running over, soaked with water, consumed it all like that. Amazing God showing up. And Elijah having this power and ability to call down fire from heaven. Right? And the people's response was what? You remember this started with Elijah saying, how long are you going to waver between, between two gods? If Baal's God, serve him. But if, if the Lord is God serve him. And God showed up in a mighty way, and, and the people responded with, the Lord, he is God, professing truth, right? Major victory, an incredible, you know, shot in the arm of, a, of boosting his faith, and God showed up. And you just imagine, if, if you are Elijah in this moment, and God go, fulfills this, how are we feeling? That's right. My God showed up. I am full of confidence and strength and power and filled by the Holy Spirit. But yet when we get to chapter 19, the story takes an interesting twist. So let's take a look at it. Let's start reading in, in 
verse 1, it says, Now Ahab, now mind you, Ahab, Jezebel was not at Mount Carmel. She didn't witness this, so she dismisses all of this. Verse 1, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the desert or the wilderness. He came to a broom tree, that's a juniper tree, and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. So not quite the the next chapter that we would expect given what just happened, right? We're not expecting this. I mean, imagine this... This prophet who had just requested that God show up in a mighty way and send fire from heaven to consume the offering, prove that he is God once and for all to his people. Now he is on the run for his life, fearing for his life. His fear of what Jezebel was going to do to him outweighed his faith in the Lord, right? And because of that, he fled to the wilderness rather than standing firm and fighting for the liberty of his people from Ahab and Jezebel. So this brings us to to point one on on your outline if you're taking notes. Um, I'd give this to you. And so what we kind of understand and we take away from this is that when the fear of our circumstances overshadows our faith, in the Lord, we flee to the wilderness, right? So I, I think about think about this and our fear and our circumstances and fleeing. I'm going to share a story with you, and don't think any any less of me after you after you hear the story. <clears throat> some of you, some of you, that's not possible, right? <laughs> but when I was about 12 years old, 10, 11, 12, 13, somewhere, I'm I'm going to say I'm adolescent. And adolescents, especially adolescent boys, they don't make the best decisions in the world, okay? So we'll just go ahead and preface that. But um, my brother and I uh, were at my, our cousin's house. They live in northwest Arkansas. And this must have been a, a period of time where our parents must have just been fed up with us because they just dropped us off and left us, right? This is like a six-hour drive to get here. So this is saying something when your parents are like, hey, we're going to drop you off and we're not even going to stick around, right? This is going to be your aunt and uncle's problem for, for a week. Um, actually, I'll have to find out later. I don't know where they went. My mom's here. I'll have to ask her where they went, but they probably had a mini vacation. Anyway, so it, it's 4th of July when this is going on, and you can imagine 4th of July with a bunch of teenage boys, my brother and I, and, I, and my two cousins, we decide to have a little fun with some, some fireworks, right? You know, throwing bottle rockets, you know, throwing, you know, uh, fireworks. And, and uh, you know, back then they had these, these M90s, right, these big, you know, fireworks. And we're, we're lighting those. We're throwing them up in the air and watching them boom and just having a big time. And, and, and I remember that I'm sitting there and I have this M90 in my hand and I'm, and I'm trying to get it light, trying to get it lit, trying to get it lit. And all of a sudden, one of my cousins is yelling, hey, watch out, watch out, watch out. And so my initial response is looking up, thinking, okay, there's a firework coming down on my head that's about to explode. I look up, and there's nothing. There's nothing. They're yelling, look out, look out, look out. And the next thing you know, boom, M90 blows up in my hand. (laughs) And you know know what I did? I took off running. I took off running. Not know, I don't know why I did that. Think, maybe thinking the faster I run. I had no idea where I was going. I was running. I just ran, thinking that somehow running was going to take away the pain that I was feeling in my hand, right? 
I looked down and I was, I was shocked that my fingers were still there. These are still my real fingers, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but I took off running. I was so afraid in that moment of what had just happened. Bang, I just had to get out of there. And you know what? I, I would love to say that I've kind of grown up and matured a little bit from that. But it, I, still, I still do that, by the way. Um, just a few years ago. Um, if you don't know my, my wife, she's here as, as well. Um, my wife's a very talented woman, um, very creative, and she makes all kinds of, of you know, projects, painting, writings, you know, she, and she got into, uh, well, she's making earrings, by the way, right now. Um, so if you want a pair, go see her, right? Um, but this, this particular point in time, she decided she wanted to start making Christmas ornaments out of uh, tree branches. And she said, uh, Rhett, I need you to cut me tree branch, cut tree branches up and so I can paint them and we can, we can sell them. I was like, okay. And so me doing the good husbandly duty that I do, right, I'm cutting tree branches for my wife. Um, this is the first time, right? So I learned, learned my lesson after this. But I had got, I was working a, a, a branch and, and, and cutting it, and I'd gotten a piece that was a little bit too small to handle, right? And so I went to cut another piece, and the, the saw I was working with shot that, shot that branch out into my, into my hand, left hand again, by the way, left hand. Um, and I thought I lost my finger. It's still here, right? Okay. It's still my real finger, right? Um, but as soon as that happened, you know what I did? I took off running. <laughs> I took off running. I don't know why. That's what, that's what I do, right? I took off running. But isn't that what we do? When we look and we're afraid of our circumstances and what's going on around us, our natural instinct is to run. We run, right? And... And look at, look at Elijah's attitude here, right? And we, we see it in verse 4. He says, I've had enough. I want to die. Skip down to verse, verse 10. You get a little bit more of it, right? He says, Elijah's replying to God. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one that's left. And now they are trying to kill me too, right? You see Elijah's attitude, his perspective on his circumstances. He's a failure, right? He says, I've been working hard for you, God. I've been doing these things. We just had this amazing experience, right? And, and you showed up in a mighty way. I've been doing all this. I've confronted Ahab and Jezebel. I've been standing firm, but it's pointless. It's, it's, it's been to no avail. This hasn't changed anything. I'm no better than anybody that's come before me. What point do I have in continuing to do this? I would rather die. Take my life, God. I'm a failure. I've been faithful only to be, it, it's, it's not proving any benefits, right? You know, it's an interesting perspective, right? If, um, if, if Elijah had really wanted to die, I think, shouldn't he just stayed in Jezreel where Jezebel was? Because she already threatened to kill him. Right? Jesus just stayed there. I mean, that was, that was where death was, right? But despite this great experience that Elijah just had with God, he now finds himself in a state of doubt, in a state of depression, a state of self-pity. And, and I, I have to ask myself, and you may be asking yourself this too, why would Elijah respond this way? Why would he respond this way? And, and, it's not recorded for us. Love, you know, sometimes they just explain the reason behind all of this, but it doesn't. So I'm going to give you my opinion. You can take that for what it's worth, right? Just, you know, chunk it, keep your own, write it down. This is my opinion. My opinion about why Elijah responded this way is that his expectation about what was going to happen at Mount Carmel didn't line up with what God's plan was. Let me ask you that. Have you ever been there? You ever been there where you're faithfully following God and doing what you think God is leading you to do and the result is not, your expectation of the result doesn't, 
doesn't line up with what God had, had planned? It's frustrating. Like, God, I'm, I'm doing all of this. This is supposed to happen. This is supposed to be the result. The people are supposed to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. They're supposed to rid themselves of idol worship. This is what's going to happen. But yet God had other plans. And so when, when um, Elijah takes his focus off of the Lord, he puts it on himself. He says, you know what? This didn't turn out the way that I was expecting it to go. Therefore, I must be a failure. God's not, God's not blessing what I'm doing, right? God's not working things out the way, the way that I thought. And when he took his eyes off of God, the only place he had to put them was on himself. And when that happens, fear crept in. Can you just see the picture of Peter walking on water here, right? You see this, right? The, the account when, when Jesus comes walking on water to the disciples and, and Peter's doing a once-over and he says, Lord, if that's you, command me to get out of the boat and I'm going to walk to you. And Peter, uh, Jesus says, yeah, come on. Come on out here. Come on in. The water's warm. And, and Peter gets out of the boat and he's miraculously walking on water, right? I don't know if any of you ever tried it. It doesn't work, Right? Unless you're being pulled behind a boat, ski, barefoot skiing, and you let go. You'll, you'll coast for a bit, but then what happens? You sink. It doesn't work. He's miraculously walking on water, but then what does it say? It says, then he began to look around, and he saw the wind. He saw the storm brew. He saw the waves, took his eyes off of Jesus, and then what? He began to sink. Right? And so what are, what are these things that drive us to the wilderness, right? In Elijah's case, right, he's doing God's work, and he's, he lost his focus. His fear crept in, and he ran to the wilderness. Sometimes we find ourselves in a wilderness not because of any choice of our own, but, but yet we are dealing with the circumstances of somebody else's choice. Somebody else has made a choice that directly impacts our lives. But guess what? We look at those circumstances and we have fear of those circumstances. And then what? Boom. We go to the wilderness. You know, sometimes God leads us there. Think about, think about Jesus right after he, he got baptized by John the Baptist and uh, was about to embark on his, on his public ministry. The Bible says the Spirit led him to the wilderness where he faced temptation. Forty days, forty nights. It's just interesting because you'll see here, you know, the Bible, God must love forty days and forty nights, right? That's how long it, that's how long it rained. That's how long it took Elijah to get to Mount Horeb, as we'll see in a minute. That's how long Jesus was in the, was in the desert. There must be something to this, right? Forty days and forty nights, he's there. But but God led him, the Spirit led him to the wilderness that his faith would be strengthened. Sometimes we find ourselves in the wilderness because God is trying to develop perseverance, strengthen our faith, right? Sometimes the principle of we reap what we sow is at play too. Sometimes we just make bad choices. Sometimes we do. We make bad choices, and even though we recognize and we say, God, that was bad, that was wrong, that was sinful, I, I confess it, I repent, I'm not going to do that again, we still have the consequences of the choices that we make. And sometimes that takes us to the wilderness. But here's the thing, regardless, regardless of why we're in the wilderness, what we're going to see is that our God is still faithful. He's still in control despite our circumstances. Just like we just sang, right? You will always be God. Always. Still faithful. Before we move on to the, to the second point, I want to kind of give you this, this truth as well. When we leave the nurturing hand of God, the only thing that's out there is desolate wilderness. That is the only thing that is out there. When we leave the presence of God who has our 
provision, has holding our hand, or holding our life in his hand, has everything worked out. When we leave that, the only thing that's out there is desolate wilderness. There is no hope. There is no solution. There is no clarity apart from Jesus Christ. None. None whatsoever. All right. Let's move on. So what is what do we see here? So so Elijah's fled to the to the desert, the wilderness, praying for death. Let's pick up at the end of verse at the end of verse five. It says, it says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate, and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. He's gone to the principal's office, y'all. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So we see God is graciously tending to and providing for his, for his servant, miraculously bringing him food. If you go back and you, and you study the life of Elijah, you see that this is not the first time that God has miraculously brought him what he needed. At the beginning of the famine, when, when Elijah said, hey, there's going to be a famine in the land, it's not going to rain unless I say so, God sent him to a brook to have water, and he was fed by ravens. Ravens brought him food, and when that brook dried up, then he, was, he, he encountered a widow, and a widow and her only son, and she was making the last little bit of food for them, and then they were going to die. What does Elijah say? Hey, make me something first. And so this widow had to make a choice. Do I believe the word of God? And make this cake for Elijah, or do I not? But by her choice, choosing to follow the word of God, God blessed that, and they survived the famine, right? So we see Elijah fed by ravens, fed by a widow, and now fed by an angel. Apparently, Elijah is no good in the kitchen, right? You know, he needs help, right? He needs divine intervention in the kitchen, right? But God, I mean, just picture it. God is reminding him, hey, I fed you once before. I looked after you once before in this famine. I took care of you. I'm showing you that I'm still here and I'm still providing for you. And here's the thing. Elijah running into the wilderness for isolation, desperation, only to find that his God's already there. God is already there with him, right? So this brings us to our second point. It's that despite our faithless retreats, God restores us by giving us exactly what we need, right? And in this moment, you think about what did Elijah need most? He needed rest, he needed nourishment, and he needed to be reminded that God is still there. I mean, you just think about what he's just experienced in Mount Carmel. And we didn't talk about this, but after that moment at Mount Carmel, it says that, that Elijah said, hey, Ahab, hitch up your chariot and get back because rain's coming. And the rain clouds came, and it says that, that Elijah took off. He, he uh, brought up his, his cloak And he took off and ran ahead of Ahab some 20-something miles all the way back to Jezreel. I mean, this dude is exhausted, right? You ever been in a moment where where you've seen God move in a mighty way and you've you've, you've poured your, your heart into it? Just how exhausting that is? You need rest. You need nourishment. You need to be reminded that God is still in control, right? Generally, what we need when we find ourselves in these in these times in our in the wilderness, and aren't we glad that God doesn't give us what we ask for sometimes? <laughs> I mean, especially 
in the wilderness. I mean, you think about it. What did Elijah ask for? God, I'm a failure. I want to die. He asked for death and isolation. God gave him rest. God gave him nourishment. Because God knows what he needed. God knows what we need. We don't. Our God has created us. Our God has formed us. He knows us. He knows how our minds work. He knows where our hearts are, pro, you know, our, 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 where our proclivities are for our heart, where we're going to go to. He knows how we're going to react. He knows everything about us. But you know what he also knows? What his plan for you is. He knows his will for you. He knows it, knew what his will for Elijah was. And he says, you know what, Elijah, you may want to die. You may think that you're a failure. You may think that everything that you've done is pointless. And you're out here and, 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 you know, and, you're, and you're depressed and, and, and self-pity. But I know the plans that I have for you. I know my will and I'm not done with you yet. Here is food. Here is rest. Because your journey, your journey's not done. Not done with you yet. Still have work for you to do. All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Let's see how, how God redeems his dejected prophet. Let's pick up at the, end of, at the end of verse 9. It says this. And the word of the Lord came to him. Word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, what are you doing here? Elijah, and he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And, the wind. and after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he gives the, gives the same response. Let's ju jump down to verse 15. Then the Lord responds to him after his, after his plea of, hey, I'm the only one left. I've been faithful. I've done all these things. It's no point. I'm the only one left. God says to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint uh, Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, I guess that's how you say that, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death uh, any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. You see God redeeming his dejected prophet here. And he starts with the, the gentle rebuke of saying, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here? He says, this is not part of the plan. Elijah, you're my prophet. You're my man. Your job is to go and confront Ahab and Jezebel and be my mouthpiece, be my witness to my people that I am still God to turn from their ways and follow me. That is your job. And you cannot do that when you're right here. What are you doing here? Why are you here? He says, I'm not finished with you yet. I still got work for you to do. Amen. But think about this. That simple question, why are you here? What are you doing here? got Elijah to think about what? What's my purpose? Why am I here? What has God called me to do? And when he's thinking about the Lord's purpose for his life, he's not thinking about whom? Himself. 
He's not thinking about his circumstances. God's forcing him to look and say, what have I called you to do, Elijah? Because this ain't it. I've got more for you. I need you to be back doing what I've called you to do. And so God God, uh, decides that he was going to pass by Elijah. Now this Mount Horeb is the same mountain where Moses had his encounter with, with God when God gave him the Ten Commandments and set forth the law. And Moses said, God, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And God says, nah, it's too much. You can't. He says, but you know what? Hide behind the cleft in the rock, and when I pass by, you can see the back of my shoulder. That's about as much as you can, as you can take. And just by that function, it said when Moses came down from the mountain, it said he was beaming, right? Because he had been in the presence of God. This is where, this is where Elijah is, and, and God decides to do for Elijah what he did for Moses. He says, I'm going to pass I'm going to pass by. Go outside. I'm going to pass you by. And I'm going to show you my character. I'm going to show you who I am. And then we see, see the famous you know, passage that, that probably you've read many, many times about the wind coming. And God is not in, not in the wind. And the earthquake. And he wasn't in the earthquake. And the fire that came down, he wasn't in the fire. So what we, what we gather from that is God's not a fan of earth, wind, and fire, y'all. He's not, there's no boogie wonderland for God, right? He doesn't like earth, wind, and fire. I'm just kidding. He probably does. Well, I, I'll ask him when I get there, and I'll let you know. But it's, a, it's such a beautiful picture of what God is, is communicating to Elijah here. He says, he goes, I'm putting on display for you all the destructive powers that I, that I, that I have. Not all that I have. I'm just showing you the destructive powers. We think about what rips this world apart. Wind, fire, earthquake. He says, I'm in control over all of that. And God can choose to respond in any way that he chooses. Amen. And yet, how does he respond? In the gentle, still voice. Right? God, there, there's coming a day where God will show up with his, all of his destructive powers. But how awesome is it that he has reserved his still, small voice for his church, for his people, right? That's what he has for us. And he's showing Elijah who his character is. He says, I'm, I control all of this. And you think about it. Had he responded to Elijah in the wind, and in the earthquake, and in the fire. Let me ask you this. Put it to this. If God showed up in a wind that was ripping this whole place apart, how are we going to react? I don't know about you, but I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to be running the other way, right? But when he comes to him in that still, small voice, he's drawing him in. He says, Elijah, I'm still here. I'm still in control, and I have the power, and I have the authority over all of this, but yet I'm choosing to do things my way. God works his will and purpose through the hearts of people, the still, small voice. And so how does, so how does God redeem Elijah, right? He sets him on his next task. He says, hey, Elijah, focus, right? I got more work for you to do. I need you to go anoint two new kings, and they're gonna they're gonna take care. And then also, I'm gonna need you to anoint Elisha as your as your you know successor, right? And so what he's what he's doing here, what he he's giving Elijah a picture of. He's saying, hey, I'm not letting my people get away with their idol worship. I've got my plans. Don't you worry about that. I'm in control. He's showing him that. He's showing him, hey, Elijah, you're not going to have to feel this way forever because I've still got work for you to do, but your time's almost done. So you need Elisha to step, to step up. But then he also says, you know what? I'm working even though you may not see it. May not see it. 
And so that brings us to our third point, is that God is always working good through our circumstances. So we need to commission ourselves according to his purpose. You know, Elijah, in his, in his state, in his state of despondency and despair and, des- and depression, he lost sight of God's promises, lost sight of God's faithfulness. You know, it reminds me of the, uh, the scene from the movie Patch Adams. Anybody ever seen that, seen that movie, Patch Adams? Um, I love watching, that, love watching that movie. If you haven't seen it, I'll kind of give you the 30-second you know, kind of preview. But um, basically, it's, it stars Robin Williams and, and a few other you know, uh, top-name actors that you, that you would recognize. But Robin Williams plays a, an individual who's just, he's a very smart, he's brilliant, but he's struggling to find his purpose in life. And in one particular scene in the movie, he checks himself into a mental institute because he is literally going crazy because he doesn't know what to do. He's trying to find what is my purpose? Why am I here? And he encounters people in this mental institute. And there's, a, there's an older gentleman that is there with him that is driving all of the other folks in there crazy because they can't, they can't find the solution to his problem. And then you see this one scene where Robin Williams and this older gentleman get together and they have this interaction. And he asks him the same thing that he's asked every other person. He says, how many fingers am I holding up? Right? He asks Robin Williams that. And obviously, Robin Williams says, you're holding up four fingers. Everybody else in the, in the mental institute thinks the guy's crazy because he doesn't know that he's holding up four fingers. And when Robin Williams says, you're holding up four fingers, he's, he gets upset. And he says, no, no, no. You're focusing on the wrong things. Don't look at the fingers. Look beyond the fingers. Look beyond the issue. Look beyond the present circumstance and tell me what you see. And so the next, the next scene you see, Robin, the, the camera focus changes to where it focuses on the, on the image in the back, and it changes from four to eight fingers. And he says, I see eight fingers. And the guy says, that's right. Stop focusing on the facts and the circumstances, look beyond, look at what is beyond the problem and see where the purpose lies. So Elijah, focusing on his fear, his circumstances, lost sight of God's goodness and all the goodness that God had been doing, right? The fact that that all the folks that were there on Mount Carmel proclaimed the fact that the Lord is God. Amazing proclamation given where they were. He lost sight of that. We didn't read it, but, but Obadiah is a, is a prophet at this same time as well. And as Ahab and Jezebel were seeking, going out and killing all the prophets of God, Obadiah saved a hundred of them, hid them in caves, fed them, kept them alive. Elijah lost side of that and and even the fact that God's saying you know what there's 7,000 other people that have not yet bowed down to Baal and you're not aware right he lost sight of that and when we focus when we focus on ourselves and our circumstances in this wilderness we lose sight of what God's doing both in our lives through us in other people's lives you know, uh, Paul writes in, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, he says, we need to fix, since we, we are a new creation in Jesus, let us set our hearts and minds on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, not on, on earthly things. The author of, of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, since then, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses that are, that are cheering us on, let us throw off every sin that entangles us. Let us run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes where? On Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
You see, if, we're, if we are in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ, then you have been adopted as a child of God, a son or daughter of the Most High God, which means that we are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and every promise that God has made to us through his word is applicable to you today. And we need to be reminded of that sometimes. Promises that God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Promises that says you won't be overcome by temptation in your life. No temptation that that you face is going to be anything but what's common to man. But yet when you face temptation, I'm going to give you a way out so that you can endure underneath it. He He didn't say he's going to take it away, did he? He says, I'm going to give you a way of escape so that you can endure underneath it. Well, you kind of talked about this, but in Romans 8, 28, he says, we know that God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul, Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, but through prayer in all circumstances, in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving in our heart, let your requests be known to God. And then here's the promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Those are the promises that our God, our Father, has made to his children for these moments when we find ourselves in the wilderness. And so as we kind of wrap this up, I'm ask the band to, to come back, back on up and, and close us out. But... As we wrap this up and as we, as we go, maybe you're in a wilderness right now. Maybe, maybe you're heading towards one. You're running, running rapidly there. Maybe you, just came out of, maybe you just came out of one. But I hope that you're encouraged by the story of Elisha that, or Elijah that even the powerful prophet of God, it can happen, it can happen to him. So we need to guard our hearts and minds. Be reminded of the truths. And when we find ourselves in this wilderness, first and foremost, you are not alone. Because God is always there. You are not alone. And then next we examine, what are we doing here? Why are we here? Why are we in this wilderness? What has brought us here? So such that we focus, take our focus off the fear of our circumstances, what's going on around us, and think about what's our purpose? What has God called us to do? Focus on that calling. God, what do you want me to do next? This doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to take me out of this wilderness, but I'm not going to stay there in my state of self-pity and depression because you have work for me to do. What's my task? What do you want me to do? If you'd like to, to pray or, or use this time as God, God leads you, I'll be down front. Um, just move as the Lord leads you during this time, as the band leads us, and then we'll, we'll close when we're done.